here we are. We're starting a new series. We finished our first series, In Christ. It was nine weeks. How many of you learned something from the In Christ series about who you are in Christ? Amen. We went through God's word week by week, first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and we heard over and over again what God has done for us in Christ. Those who belong to him, who place their faith in Jesus, we learned what Christ has done for us and in us and who we are. Now we're going to transition into a new series and we're going to continue through the book of Ephesians and we'll be in chapter 4. We're only going to cover one verse this morning, Ephesians 4.1. And this series is going to cover verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. And the entire series is about the local church. It's about who we are to be. It's about who we are to be based upon what Christ has done in us and what the church should look like. And so we're going to, it's going to be a six week series on the, on the local church and we're calling it Built Together. Built Together. And so I want to open up in prayer and we're going to begin this journey through chapter four. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ and gathering around your word. Lord, your word is true. Your word is truth and we submit to your word God, we ask, God, that you would help us to receive what it is that you would say to us. And God, I thank you for helping me to communicate clearly. Help me to say what is on your heart and to honor you with the words that I say. Lord, be honored, be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the premise of everything that we learn in this first series is centered around our identity in Christ. And the rest of this book as we go through it, the last three chapters, chapter four, five, and six, is centered on how we live in light of who we are. How should we live in light of who we are? And who we are should inform how we live. Have, have you ever met somebody that just looked out of place? They're doing something and it just doesn't seem to be who they are. They're living in a certain way, they're doing a certain action, and you think, no, 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 that's really not who you are. <laughs> you, you, that's really not, you, that doesn't fit. Kind of like, for example, me playing football. You know, hey, I can run if I got in shape. I could gain some stamina, and I can run, and I can catch. Many people know. Who's ever played uh, Ultimate Frisbee with me? Sean Mesh, you, you, you looking? Yeah, Sean, Sean, Sean. What, 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 what was it that they called me, Sean? Megatron. You, who, who knows who Megatron? Megatron was Calvin Johnson in football. I'm, I'm the Megatron of ultimate Frisbee. And I can catch the Frisbee. Right? I can catch, but you hit me? It's a problem, right? I'm out of place in football. I don't fit. That is not who I am. Who I am is not a football player, so I should not be living in accordance with that. Did you guys follow my logic here? You ever seen somebody that they, they, they say that they're, you know, that they have musical talent, you know, like on the American Idol show? You know, the part that we all like to watch. People who, who, who believe this is who they are, but it is just not who they really are. Somebody misinformed them. Somebody lied to them. Somebody was not honest with them along the journey. Be honest with your family members along the journey. If they can't sing, they can't sing. Just be honest with them up front. It will cause less pain in the future. Tem- temporary pain. It's just temporary. But, but that's not who they are. So they, sh- so, so they can't live in accordance with something that they're not. And this is the reality that we're looking at, is that, is that who we are as believers is redeemed, forgiven. 
We are, we are new creations in Christ. We have a new nature. We have new desires. And so because of who we are, then we live different. And that living impacts the church. The way we live as individual people impacts the church locally, impacts the church globally. And so what we're going to look at is in this beginning journey of looking at how the Apostle Paul has communicated that we should live in these three chapters, we're going to start with looking at the church. This is where the Apostle Paul starts. And so we're going to look at, at, at what, what the description of a church is. What is a church? What should a church look like? What is a church? Why do we gather? What is the purpose of the church? Why a building? And so we're going to look at, in this beginning journey, of figuring out how we should live in accordance with who we are. The first thing we're going to look at is our church is a church. What is a church? And so I have three simple points we're going to look at. The first one is this. The church is not a building, but a people. The church is not a building, but a people. You know, I believe so many people believe that church is a building. They believe that the church is brick and mortar. They believe that the church is a place that you come and you gather and you worship. The church is not a building. It is not a sanctuary. This is not the church. This is a building. It's a building. This is not what is holy. This building is not holy. It is a building. I know some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought the building was holy. Am I stepping on your toes a little bit? This building is a building. This building is not holy and sanctified. It is a building. We use the building to gather, but the church is not a building. Many people believe the church is a building. The truth is, hear me, the truth is, is that when we meet in a building that houses the church on Sunday morning, it is the people that make up the church, not the building. Buildings house the church. The church, the, the building is not the church. Do you follow me? The building houses the church. The church is not a building, it's a people. It's not sanctified and holy. It is we who are called to be sanctified and holy. It is we who, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, when we surrender in faith, we become holy and like Christ. And so we are the building. So God's presence used to dwell in buildings. It used to dwell in buildings. If you look back in the Old Testament, we see God's presence dwelt in man-made structures. You see, i got a, a, uh, some dates here about the different temples and tabernacles. First one would be the tabernacle, 1444 B.C., before Christ. This, is, this was the tent of meeting that Moses constructed that while they were in the wilderness, they would navigate and, and the tent of meeting would be there. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and God's presence would dwell in a tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. And then you go further on and, and David... The king, king David, the king of Israel, had a burden in his heart that, that, God's, that God would have a house. God would have a place for his presence to dwell that was permanent and not temporary. So he went before the Lord and said, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God said, nope, can't do it. It's not for you. But your son will build me a temple, will build me a house. And that's, when, that's Solomon's temple. And, and you see Solomon constructed a temple in uh, uh, be, uh, in 9, 966 BC, and it was planned by David but built by Solomon. Actually, if, if you go into Second uh, uh, Chronicles, First Second Chronicles, you, you you see David go right right before he's going to die. He goes and gets Solomon, and he says, "Solomon, look, here's what you need to do." And he actually David gets while he's still king, he gets 
he gets his rulers and people uh, that, that, are hit, that, that, that are under him and he pulls them to himself and he says, look, my son Solomon, he's kind of young and inexperienced. and He's going to need some help. That's actually what he says. He said he's inexperienced. He's going to need some help. And so David, it says in Second Chronicles, began to, began to make preparations for the building. And then he went to Solomon and he says, okay, son, now build God a house. And then David died. Solomon constructed his temple. A temple for God. But it was destroyed. It was, it was destroyed. The, the nation of Israel went through journeys and, and seasons of worshiping God and honoring God and, 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 and then rebelling against God. And then foreign nations come and taking over them and oppressing them. And in that pattern is whenever Nebuchadnezzar and the foreign nation of Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, destroyed Solomon's temple. And God did not have a house for his presence to dwell for hundreds of years, and then under Zerubbabel's kingdom, Zerubbabel's temple was built uh, in 516, and it lasted until 169 BC. And this is the second temple. The second temple where God's presence dwelled was desecrated and had to be restored, and ultimately it was Herod's temple that was constructed and built in 19 BC. It was restored, it was the restored second temple. You guys follow me? Getting the history here. So God's presence would dwell. Temporary tabernacle, permanent tab- Solomon's temple, then the second temple, then the, re- then the restored second temple. And this restored second temple, Herod's temple, is when it was constructed, is when 19 years before Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus ultimately prophesied that that temple would be destroyed, and it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But before Jesus came, that's where God's presence would dwell. Then the incarnation happened. Then God became man. God dwelt on the earth in the flesh in, as, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see that Jesus' purpose was to die, to be crucified. And you look, Matthew 27, 46 through 51 says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and some of the bystanders hearing it said this man is calling Elijah and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink but the other said wait wait let us see whether Elijah will come to save him and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up nobody took his life Jesus yielded up his life willingly yielded up his spirit and behold the instant Jesus died gave up his spirit it says the curtain of the temple which was Herod's temple the curtain of the temple which separated the temple from the holy of holies where God's presence dwelled that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom to signify that God was the one who tore down the curtain the separation between man and God's presence and the earth shook and the rocks were split when Jesus yielded up his spirit the barrier between God's presence and people was torn down And then after the resurrection, Jesus shows himself to over 500 people and he gets his disciples and says, I'm going to heaven, I'm ascending to heaven, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you a comforter. Go and wait in the upper room for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit's gonna come, lead you and guide you in all truth. And so the Holy Spirit comes, the early church is born, the first church is born in Acts chapter two and they begin the mission of spreading the good news of the resurrected Savior. Fast forward, Acts 17. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to men of Athens and 
some educated men, and this is what he says. The God, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Does not live in temples made by man. The church is not a building, it is a people. God doesn't live here. When you guys leave, God's not by himself in here like waiting for you to come back. He's not like hanging out here. When you leave, the spirit of God leaves with you as you go out. Because if you're a believer here, you carry the spirit of God. So where does God live now? Where does his presence dwell? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Where does God dwell? His spirit in us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of God within you. That is where God dwells in you within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Second Corinthians 6 says this, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. The church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. The church, listen to this, the church is a group of people from every walk of life, rich, poor, from the best side and the worst side of town. Educated, uneducated, every shade of skin color make up his church. All of those who place their faith in Christ alone for salvation are the people who become the temples of the living God. That is who the church is. You are the church. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're here this morning, you are the church. It is not a building, but it is a people. It is not a building, but it is a people. I know this sounds This is very fundamental and ground level, but we're going somewhere with this. We're going to build this description of the church. The church is not a building but a people, and this leads us to our second description of the church. Second, the church is a people who have been redeemed. The church is not a building but a people, but what type of people make up the church? People who have been redeemed. The first three chapters of Ephesians have told us who makes up the church. Those that have been adopted into God's family, those that have been redeemed and forgiven, those, those that are children of God, they are the ones that make up the church. The church is not a gathering. We're the church, and the church is not a gathering of the religious. It's not a gathering of the curious. It's not a gathering of the superstitious. The church is a gathering of the righteous. Those that have been made righteous by God, that is the church. And that word church in the original language is the word ekklesia. And it means called out. Those that have been called out from darkness into light. That is what the church is. The church is not a building, but it is a people. But it is a special kind of people. It is a people that have been called out of darkness, following the ways of this world, following the pattern of of unrighteousness, submitted to their own way and not to Christ. It's those that have been called out from there, but called in to the light, called to follow Christ. That is the church. 
The church is not a gathering of people that just, that come because it's what their grandmama always did. Well, I come to Living Word Church because my, my dad did it, my grandmother did it, my great-grandmother did it, I, or, or, or I come because, because I just enjoy the music, I come because I just enjoy the fellowship. No, no, it's a specific type of people. It's people that have made Jesus the Lord of their life. That's what makes a church. First Peter 2, 9 through 10 says this, but you, speaking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. We belong to Christ. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Called you out. The ecclesia of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. People come to this gathering, though, for many different reasons. The only reason that we should come as believers is because it is, is, it is by obedience that we come because we want to gather together, as it says in Hebrews, and not forsake the gathering of our assembling, and we want to honor and worship the Lord and, worship his, and, and honor him and exalt him, put him first. But people come for many different reasons. And the reality is, is that since the beginning of the church, there has always been a mixed gathering when the church gathers together. There's always been a mixture of sheep and goats There's always been people that come and they're not genuine Christians. They're not following Christ. They they may be curious. They may be superstitious. They may come for all kind of wrong reasons, but they are not the church. Those who are believers are the church. And there's a push. There's always been a push for, for especially I have noticed it in, in the last 15 to 20 years, last decade or so, for the church, for pastors to bring down the clarity, to blur the lines of truth. Because the idea with that thinking is what, well, if, if, if you really speak the truth and you're clear, then you're going you're gonna to push away. You're going to push away those that are curious. You're going to push away those that are not saved. And you know, here's, here's how I feel about that whole subject. If we believe that God's word is true and we believe that heaven is real and hell is just as real, and we believe that people will spend eternity either in heaven forever with God in his presence or in hell forever with Satan and his demons. If we believe that to be true, we don't need less clarity. We need more clarity. We need more clarity. Because may it never be that it was ever said of us at Living Word Church, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me the truth? You really believe this book to be true and God's inspired words and this is what God's word says? That this is not just sentimental religion, but this is life and death? This is that the word of God speaks to eternal realities? Why didn't you tell me? We must say it. We must bring the clarity. Because look, the majority of you are believers here this morning and you're here to worship the Lord, but there may be some of you here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet. You have not come to the place where you recognize your full dependence on him for everything. And our prayer is is that you would. Our prayer is is that you would see the beauty of Christ and that when you would compare the beauty of Christ to the things of this world, the things that the world have to offer, that you would recognize that Jesus is far more beautiful. And you would see that he is worthy of your full devotion and the surrender of your heart. 
but we will always preach the truth. You know, there, there, are, there are also other people that come in to the church. Sometimes you can have false teachers that come in. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. I mean, certain people have crept into the church, into the congregation of believers who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They pervert the grace of God. You know, all the things we learn in the first three chapters of Ephesians, they pervert that and say, because of who we are, because of the grace of God, then we can live however we want to live. And they use that excuse for sensuality. And the Apostle Paul says, says, take note of them. Take note of those people when they come into the church. God's word is true and may every man be a liar. You know, Matthew 7 makes it clear. I just want to, just want to say this. Matthew 7 makes it clear that there will be many in that day who say, Lord, Lord, I've done miracles. This is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. We don't have the text, but it says in Matthew 7, it says that many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did wonderful works in your name. And the Lord's going to look at, him on, look at them on that day and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. It's a sobering reality, Right? Sobering reality, you could have somebody who, who would come and be a part of the family of God, come and, and attend services and, and do spiritual things, but on that day, they never placed their faith in Jesus. Their faith was in something else, but not in Christ. So how, how, how is it that somebody goes from being just somebody who comes into a building with the church and becomes a part of the church, becomes the church? How does that take place? Matthew 13 gives us a picture of that. Jesus is talking about a parable of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 18 through 23 says this. I want you to catch these three main points here. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. But as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This last description is a description of someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why we need clarity. Listen to this. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the soil of the heart that's been prepared by the Spirit. This is the one who hears, understands, and bears fruit. Say that with me. Say hear, understand, bear fruit. So you can have somebody that hears, but they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand that God is holy and I am not. And if I don't have atonement for my sin and forgiveness of sin, I stand in judgment be, be, be before God. And maybe they come for some other reason. They come for the list of reasons that people might come. But they don't come and hear the gospel and understand it. So here's the steps that it takes for someone to demonstrate 
who they are in Christ and, and for the gospel to take root. It's, it's first this, you've got to hear the gospel. No one gets saved apart from the gospel. Scripture says that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we make it plain. We preach the gospel. And then somebody must understand it before they can be saved. If you don't understand what you're doing, and you have confessed Christ, but you don't understand it, you're not going to bear fruit. When the, when the cares of this world comes in, as it says in Matthew 13, when the deceitfulness of riches grips your heart, it'll choke out the seed of God's word. You must hear it, and you must understand it, and then what's going to happen? You're going to bear fruit. That is the evidence. Somebody cannot claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and not have fruit of repentance in their life. It is the pattern. You hear the gospel, you understand the gospel, and then you bear fruit. If someone has heard the gospel, then understood the gospel, and responded in faith, they will produce fruit of life change. Doesn't mean that they're not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that as a believer that we will not fail or fall. But it means that there will be fruit of change in your life when you're genuinely con- converted. And the pattern of your life changes. That's conversion. So the church is what? It's not a, but it's a, what kind of people make up the church? Redeem people. People that are Christians make up the church. This is the church. And then thirdly, this leads us to our final description of the church. The church is a redeemed People whose lives shine as lights in the darkness. Whose lights shine as lights in the darkness. When Paul wrote this letter to the believers in in Ephesus, Ephesus was a pagan city that worshipped idols. And their biggest idol that they worshipped was the goddess Diana. We got a couple pictures here. I'm going to put up a picture. This is the temple to Artemis, or Diana, the goddess Diana. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and the measurements of it were that the width of it, or the, I should say the length of it from front to back, was four football, like four football fields long. And it was over 65 feet tall. It was, this was a massive temple to the goddess Diana. And Paul went to Ephesus to preach the gospel. And you look in Acts 19. Paul comes. This is the account that's found in Acts 19. Paul comes and preaches the gospel in Ephesus. And he makes an uproar, right? Because he's coming in and saying that the goddess Diana is not the right god. She's not the true god. She's a false god. And there was this silversmith named Demetrius. And Demetrius would make these silver idols of the goddess Diana. And I can't show you a picture of the goddess Diana because it is inappropriate to show you a picture of the goddess Diana because she was considered to be the god of, of sexuality. She was, she was a god of fertility and she was a false god. And so in Ephesus, there was this sexual sin that was prevalent throughout their city. And so when Paul came in, started preaching the way of Jesus Christ, people started getting, getting saved. They would hear the gospel, they'd, they'd understand it, they'd believe, and they'd start changing their life. Changes would come. And, and Demetrius said, look, wait a minute. He'd get his people in Ephesus, his other, his other silversmith people, and say, wait a minute, this guy Paul is messing up our business. We need, to, we need to fix this. And so, it's, so they got the town council together. They got leaders of the town. And they, they brought Paul into the town square. And it says in Acts 19 that a riot broke out. And it says that so many people came and people started shouting, great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. Great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. And they shouted it for over two hours. 
It even, it's even an interesting description in Acts 19. It says that some people came and they had no idea why they were there and why they were saying what they were saying. Just a mob mentality. Doesn't that happen so often when mobs get together? People just like chaos. And they come, they have no idea why they're there, have no idea what they stand for, but there's a crowd shouting things, and so they join in. And Paul was like, wait a minute, we're just preaching the gospel. And, and some person in the community said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's going to be okay. Let's just bring this before the town council and they can work things out. And so this, this, is, the, this is the nature of what's going on when the gospel is being preached in Ephesus. It is a pagan society, a pagan culture. And they had over 300,000 people that lived in Ephesus. So it was a metropolitan city, a port city, who served a fertility god and, and they were pagan. And this is where the gospel was being preached. Very similar. Very similar to our culture. Very similar to, to the society in which we live. And listen to the text. We're going to get to the text. Ephesians 4.1. Listen to what Paul tells that church. Listen to what Paul tells us as Christians here in Homa, Louisiana. He says, Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this is where we're headed. This is what I talked about in the beginning of this message. Apostle Paul laid out for three chapters who we are in Christ as Christians. This is what a Christian is. This is who a church is. And now, based upon who you are, walk in a manner that is worthy of who you are. Let who, how you live reflect who you are. And I want to I talk about those words here. When he says walk, when he says I want you to walk in a manner worthy, that word walk means to behave in a customary manner. To focus on continuity of action. So Paul is saying that the continuity of action in your life should be a reflection of your faith in Jesus Christ. It should be the normal pattern of your life. The normal pattern of the life of a believer who's been called out by God, who's been forgiven, redeemed, and adopted, the normal pattern in the life of a believer is one of spiritual growth. So that's what Paul says. Because of who you are, walk in this normal pattern of righteousness. And then he says, walk in a certain way. He says, walk worthy. What does it mean to walk worthy? That word worthy means that it's what should should be expected. Or it's corresponding to reality. Do you guys follow me? So if this is who you are, then it should be expected that this is how you should live. If this is who you are, then living to please God corresponds with the reality of who you are. And then he says this. He says, I urge you to walk worthy. He says, I urge you. Paul urges the believers in Ephesus to live in a manner that reflects who they are in Christ. That word urge means to plead with. To ask for earnestly and to beg. So what's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, I'm begging you, church in Ephesus, because of who you are, live amongst an ungodly people in a way that reflects what I've done in your life. Church in Homa, the Apostle Paul begs you, and I beg you as your pastor, live worthy of the calling which God has called you. He's called you out of darkness into the light. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I beg you. I beg of you to live in this culture, in the midst of this dark world, in a way that honors God. 
Paul is saying, I beg you, I plead earnestly that you would live your life in accordance with who God has made you to be. Let your manner of life correspond to the reality of what Christ has done in your heart. Commit yourself towards Christ-likeness. That's the call. The church is not a building, but it's a people. It's a people that are redeemed, but it's not just a people that are redeemed. It's a people that are continuing to grow in Christ-likeness. This is the pattern of the church. This is the pattern of the rest of this study in Ephesians. We're going to look at what it means to be Christ-like, to continue to grow, to be like Christ. We're all at different levels of spirituality, different levels of spiritual growth, but the goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ in every area of our life. I want to quote this. This is from a Holman Bible handbook. It says this, the church's privileged position and calling carries with it weighty responsibilities. We have responsibilities as believers in the middle of a pagan culture to live in a way that honors God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're called to abstain from the things of this world, the sins of this world as believers in Jesus Christ. That is the pattern of a church. We're not a building, we're a people, we're a redeemed people, but we are not just a redeemed people, we're a holy people who live holy, who pursue holiness. As we draw closer to Christ, and are being conformed into his likeness, we should increasingly grow in our dislike of the things in this world that hinder our relationship with God. I want you to know something, church, brothers, sisters, there are things in this world that will hinder your relationship with Christ. Some of you feel like, I just have not been able to grow. I feel like my growth has been stunted. I'm not growing in Christ. Maybe it's because you're, you're, you're connecting with and associating with things of, the, of this world that are ungodly and is zapping you of your spiritual strength. You've got to reject this. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. Romans 6 says, how can we who, are, who have died to sin live in sin any longer? God forbid. God forbid. God forbid that we would. If this is who we are, you guys follow me? This is who we are. God forbid that we would continue to live as a pattern of our life in sin. Romans 12 says this. I appeal. This is the same language Paul uses in Ephesians. That urging. He's saying, I appeal to you, therefore, who? Brothers. He's talking to Christians here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of who you are in Christ, because of what Christ has done for you, by the mercies of God, that you would present. This is an active presentation of our life in holiness to the Lord. That because of what God's done internally, that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not just the lifting of our hands and the singing of songs. Worship is a living sacrifice. Where we come and we bring our lives and we submit our lives each and every day to walking in ways that please the Lord as believers in Jesus Christ. This is your spiritual worship. 
Listen to this, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. Don't be conformed. What does it mean to be conformed? What it means is, is do not be forced into the mold of the world and its fleshly desires. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the world wants to form you into its mold. It wants you to adopt its beliefs and its standards, and, its want, and it wants you to lower your standards of what you know God's word says is true. That's what the world, that's what Satan wants, because listen, what Paul knew is true then, we know is true now. A church that, that conforms to the world is powerless. A church that conforms to the world is powerless. There's nothing that stands out. We're called to be distinct and to stand out. I want to illustrate that for you. I have, I have some Play-Doh. I'm going to illustrate this for you with some Play-Doh. We're called to be distinct and to stand out. Thank you so much. So this is going to represent us. As believers in Jesus Christ, right? Can, I know some of you up there will struggle to see this, but this is white Play-Doh, right? Our sins have been forgiven. It used to be, we, we used to be scarlet red, full of sin. We were stained by sin, cursed by sin, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made right, white and cleansed and pure and righteous. This is who we are. And so, but the reality is, is that we are pliable, right? Scripture says that, that we are the we are the clay and God is the, the potter. And we should allow God's hands to work in our life through the power of God's word. He shapes us and he molds us. And we should, our hearts should remain pliable in his hand. This is what we're called to be. We're not called to conform to the world. The world wants to get us to take their shape. The world wants us, Satan is demons. They want us to water down God's word to not draw clear lines, and to just adopt the, the, the worldly standards to where the world can come into church and just be comfortable. And when, when, when the world comes into church, they should be uncomfortable. They should come in here and think, well, that is not really who I am and, and who they are. Their purity, their love for the Lord stands out and there's something about it that's different than me. But if we look like the world and we're not distinct, we don't stand out and we have nothing to offer. So here's what the world does. The world says, I want you to believe what I believe. I want you to look like me, talk like me. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like all of a sudden in our life as Christians that we, we, we all of a sudden change the way we look. But, but sometimes when we adopt the worldly ways, it's like, it's like the like world's just pressing into us. And we give into the pressure to compromise our beliefs and it, it presses into us. And, and, and it's just we're being conformed. We're being molded. But it doesn't change overnight, right? You can still see. You still see light. It's kind of hidden, right? That's kind of how it works too, right? You can kind of hide it for a little while. Kind of hide it, what we're, the internal things we're taking in, the, the, the bad belief systems that we're believing. But over time, you can't hide it. Who you are is really going to come to the surface. I've got to speed up this process here. <laughs> Who you are is going to come to the surface. And it's just... It's hard to live in this world for Christ. Do you, do you, are you with me? It's difficult everywhere you turn. The music you listen to, the movies you watch, the people you work with, 
that all the different ways that the enemy has created to distract people, to get them to not see Christ, if we just buy into their system of belief, we just start blending in. It's a lot of work. We become non-distinct. Almost done. Eventually, 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 it's no more white. Who, who, who are we? Is this who we are? Right? Is this a reflection of what God has done in us? Where's our distinctiveness? This is the point of this series. It's the point of the book of Ephesians. This is where we're headed. A church is not a building, but it's a people. It's a redeemed people. That's what makes up a church. A church... Is, a, is, is that they're Christians. It's, it's redeemed people. But it's, all, but it's redeemed people that live in accordance with what God has done in their life. It's, it's people that used to be like this. Just a mishmash of all kind of ungodliness. And God made them, if I had the ability to turn this white, that would be great, but I can't. But God turned us white. He cleansed us. And so Paul is saying, I urge you. I plead with you. Live in accordance with this. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't, don't adopt their ideas, their principles, their mindsets. Because when you do, this is what you become. Non-distinct. And you don't stand out. And a non-distinct church, a non-distinct church of Christians is powerless. And this is what Ephesians is all about. This is where we're headed. You know, this is, a, this is a, a, an easy message this morning compared to where we're headed But the Apostle Paul, he he leaves no stone unturned as we go through the rest of this book. He deals with everything, the way we think, the way we talk, our marriage, the way we raise our kids. I just want to plead with you that we would not be like this, but that we would be distinct. We would live in accordance with who we are in Jesus Christ. Amen? 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 says this, but you are a chosen race. We read that earlier. Do you guys remember that earlier? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. The ecclesia of God has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Verse 11, listen to this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God has called us to shine as lights in the darkness. He has called us to be visible representations of Christ in a world that desperately needs him. Hear me, hear me. We're we're ending right here. The world desperately needs Christ. They desperately need Christ. And the way they're going to get Christ is through you. It's not going to be through me. I'm going to preach here on Sundays and you're going to grow in faith and you're going to go out those doors and you're going to share the gospel. People will 
be saved when they come here on Sundays because God will be, will be faithful to his word because the gospel will be preached. But the gospel is preached through your life. It's preached through your life. It's preached through your words, but it's preached through your distinctiveness when you stand out in this culture. And that's what Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says. Once you stand to your feet with me as we close, Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says this. You, you are distinct. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is distinct, right? It stands out. It brings flavor. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its distinctiveness, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That bright Do you remember the bright white Play-Doh? Right? You set something up that's bright and white and distinct and full of God's glory and holiness. You you set that up. A city, a church, a people set on a hill shining the light of God's glory cannot be hidden. Amen? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Jesus. God, I thank you for the truth of your word that we've heard this morning. The church is not a building, but it's a people. It's a distinct people. It's people that are redeemed. It's people that are redeemed and becoming like Christ and their life is shining as light in this dark world. Lord, I know that there are some here this morning that that they have not been redeemed. They're not part of the church yet. They're on the outside looking in and they see the distinctiveness of the gospel. They see the brightness of your glory as it shines through our lives and through your word and you're tugging on their heart this morning. You're tugging on them and you're drawing them in. Lord, I pray that you would seal the work of your spirit in their life. And I pray that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. With every head bowed, no one looking around, I just want to see a show of hands here this morning. If you are here this morning and that's you, you know that's you. You know that you're not a believer in Jesus. You, you came in here and you came in here for whatever reason as we were talking earlier. And you came here and you heard the message of the gospel and you recognize that you need Jesus in your life to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and you want to be cleansed this morning. If that's you, I want to see your hands. Is there anybody here this morning? Yes. Is there anybody else? Anyone else? I see another hand. Is there anybody else? If that's you, just slip up your hand. The, The Lord sees your surrender. Is there anybody else? that's you this morning you raise your hand when I dismiss in prayer I'll be down front the other pastors will be down front we want to pray for you we want to agree with you in prayer about your desire to follow Christ Lord I thank you for what you are doing in our church I thank you for this series and the beginning of this new journey God as we look at your word and what you've called us to be as a church Lord I pray that you would help us week after week to hear your word to receive your word 
and to be changed by your word. Lord, that we would become the church that you called us to be, that we would shine as lights in this culture, in this city, in our community. We thank you for what you're doing at Living Word Church. I just want to pray real quick. The Lord reminded me. I want to pray for Julian Laracy this morning. I'm going to pray for Julian Laracy this morning. I got word from Brother Bill and his wife Cindy in our church that their granddaughter Julian um, was diagnosed with a, a rare aggressive thyroid cancer. She's 18 years old. She's 18 years old. Her brother Brock has been struggling with cancer in his mouth and he had a portion of his tongue cut off and from everything I understand he's recovering and doing well but we want to pray as a church body for Julian Laracy so once you you agree once you hold hands with those that are next to you let's agree in prayer for Julian Laracy God we come in agreement for Julian and God we pray and ask for a miracle in her body God I ask that you would touch her thyroid and that it would be healed that she would be cancer free God do a miracle God that is what we ask we ask you for a miracle. We submit ourselves to you. We come humbly before you and bring our petition to you. We ask that you would work in her body and heal her body, Lord. And God, I pray for comfort over Julian and over her entire family. Comfort them, strengthen them during during this difficult time. Remind them every day that you are with them, that you are a good God. It doesn't make sense and it's hard to understand, but God, you're good. You are with us, and we trust you. We trust you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You are dismissed.